Oh, hi, y'all. It's Wednesday, and while we may not be at the Women's Soccer Parade in New York City right now, we still have a good show for you. We'll be talking about the parade, though, and then I'm sitting down with Broadway legend Joel Gray and actor Stephen Skybell, who's in the Fiddler on the Roof revival in Yiddish. In Yiddish, and it's amazing. Well, you stick right there, and we will see you on the timeline. But first, we are going to try to find our favorite players. Ready? Yes. All right. Megan. Ashlyn. Megan. Ashlyn, where are you? Where are you? Come out. We can't see you. you. <laughs> Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg. He's Zach Stafford, and you are watching AM to DM. Ashlyn! Megan! Where are you? Megan, come to me. I'm here for you, always. <laughs> always. I mean, we're going to be talking about this ticker tape parade imminently. Yes, we so are. So don't worry, everybody. We yes. do wish we were there, but also happy to be watching it. Yes, here, and you know? maybe one day we will stop talking about Megan Rapino, but... Today yeah. is not that day! Today is not today the day. Today is not that day. Sorry. Oh, sorry. So how are you <laughs> otherwise, besides the fact that we are sharing the same air, kind of, as the women's soccer team? Oh my gosh, I, I love that point. I hadn't even thought yeah, of it. We're sharing space. Um, Today is such a good day. Uh, I logged onto Twitter and actually I had to like avert all of the Pose and Handmaid's Tale oh, yes. spoilers. They were last night. That was a big one. But I'm really looking forward to catching up on those shows later on. Yes. And just in addition to all of the joy happening yes. around this parade. And I, you know, I love that show so much. And our dear Angelica Ross, I think, has a big part of it tomorrow yeah. or tonight or last night, which I will watch tonight. Time and is a flat circle when yes, you host the Time is a flat show. circle. We never sleep. But <laughs> I'm so excited to see her success and I can't wait to see what's in store for that show. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, speaking of success, here's a treat from the New York City Mayor's Office. They're here. They're here. The U.S. national women's team is really, really here. One nation, one team. The U.S. women's national team is enjoying their ticker tape parade right now. They've started at Battery Park and are continuing down Broadway to City Hall. And look at this. And check them out on those floats. Oh, my God. Oh, I love it. Our They're queen. downtown. So uh, today I was looking up this parade, and uh, even early this morning, there were people lining up along the side yeah. of the parade route. There are also young women from different soccer teams who are going to watch them. I just love it. And uh, I learned what ticker tape is. I didn't actually know. I had no what idea what Alex told me. She told me this morning. I know, it's like, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. And apparently, well, since people don't throw those strips of paper out of their offices anymore, mm. they actually had to get it to provide it mm. for the parade. That's great. And how much does this cost? So, so, in past years, uh, this parade for the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team has cost $1.5 million. Wow. I'm perfectly fine with that. I'm good with that. So how much <laughs> does it cost to do the men's? Well, oh wait, we don't know well, because they haven't won. They haven't won one. Sorry. So, yeah. Oops, look at that. Yeah. No offense, guys, but stop getting paid so much. Precisely. Mm. Precisely. Well, you know, this got me thinking about like what is next for this team after this parade. They've been making the rounds doing some interviews. Yep. Come on our show, please. We beg you. Oh but, uh, you know, they said that uh, Rapinoe said she's not going to go to the, the White, White House. House. Yeah. She said, I, I don't need to go there. I can go lots of other places. And, you know, I agree with her. You don't have to go to the White House. She's already been under Obama when she did what? Won the last time. My God. Indeed. Winners. Indeed. But you actually have a little political news, oh, I do. should we say, Quick fun about fact Rapinoe. while we're on, the, on it. Last night we learned through a poll that was published late last night that if Megan Rapinoe ran for president alongside, against Donald Trump, she would win. 
look, she can't stop winning. She can't stop winning. Yeah. And this team cannot stop winning. So we are so proud of them. And we hope to meet them one day. Yeah, well, I vote her for a queen of the universe. That would be perfectly <laughs> fine with me. But uh, let's take it to the timeline. What should U.S. women's national soccer team do instead of going to the White House? Tweet us using the hashtag am to dm My vote is Alex's house for a party. That's also my vote. And then, or let's go to the cubbyhole. <laughs> They've been drinking. They should keep drinking. Very, go see your people. Very famous queer lady bar. I'll meet <laughs> Everybody would love it. <laughs> I will meet y'all there. Well, switching gears this morning, here's a treat from NBC News. Sarah McBride, a prominent transgender advocate who made history in 2016 by becoming the first openly trans person to address a major political party's convention, announced Tuesday that she's running for office in Delaware. And here's a tweet from Parker Malloy. Every so often, someone will ask me a question like, do you think there will ever be a trans person in Congress? Each time, without fail, I respond, yes. And her name is Sarah McBride. Joining us today to talk about this historic campaign is Sarah McBride herself. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, Thank you. you for joining us. Thank you for making time for us. It's great to see you. So let's just jump right on in. What has inspired you to run during this cycle? Well, you know, this is a, a really critical moment in our politics. Um, and I've been really empowered by so many candidates and inspired by so many candidates up and down the ballot in Delaware and across the country who run over the last few years. Um, at the end of the day, I've had the opportunity of uh, giving back to my community and working toward equality, both here in Delaware and nationally at the Human Rights Campaign. But this is a community that I was born and raised in. And I'm coming to this campaign not as a transgender candidate, but as a candidate who was born and raised in this community, as a candidate who was a caregiver to my spouse throughout his battle with cancer, as a candidate who cares about my neighbors and wants to give back. And at the end of the day, I'm running because I want to give back to a community that helped raise me and a community that has supported and sustained me through some of the most difficult times in my own life. Um, and of course, in this moment in our politics, as we see at the national level, uh, so many efforts to roll back the clock on our progress on a number of issues. At the end of the day, state legislatures are the place where most of the decisions that impact people's lives are made. And so here in Delaware, the best place to be able to give back to my community, to help improve my community, and to make change on a whole host of issues from health care to paid family leave to criminal justice reform is by running for this seat. Mm. So you mentioned the power that uh, state legislatures and local governments have, and Delaware is only one of five states that has never elected an out LGBTQ person to its state legislature. How does that make you feel? Well, you know, I'm not running to make history here. This campaign is about making a difference and improving our community. Delaware was fortunate to have Karen Peterson, a state senator, former state senator, who came out uh, in the last two years of her final term. And her, uh, her legacy and her work has created more opportunities for LGBTQ people throughout the state, myself included. Um, but I think diversity in government is not just a good, it's a moral necessity because our governments should look like the communities they seek to represent. Our governments should look like the people that they serve. Uh, and so my hope is that I can continue to contribute to a wave of new people coming into the General Assembly here in Delaware. We had more women, more folks of color elected. And my hope is that this coming cycle, we will have uh, the first out LGBTQ person elected uh, to the state legislature here. Mm. So you were specifically running for a seat held by Henry McDowell, who held that seat for 40 years. How is your campaign going to look different than what he's done these past years? Well, Senator McDowell has actually been a wonderful, wonderful uh, public servant. He has a legacy of accomplishments on a whole host of issues from expanding access to community college 
uh, to, to helping to push forward equality and civil rights for Delawareans of all different backgrounds, to helping make sure that Delaware's budget every year uh, meets the needs of our citizens and residents. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm running to be my own person. I'm running uh, as Sarah McBride, not as anyone else. Uh, and my, my priorities are based in my own experiences here in, in this community. My priorities are based in my experience as a caregiver. Your viewers are, might not be familiar with, with my, my story. I was fortunate enough to meet and fall in love with an incredible man named Andrew Cray, who was an advocate for expanding access to healthcare. Um, about a year into our relationship, Andy was diagnosed with cancer. I was with him through all of the difficult treatment, through fighting with the hospital and insurance companies, and ultimately through his cancer spreading. And then just a few days after he, he, we exchanged our vows, he passed away. Um, and I'm running to help carry forward that torch of expanding access uh, to healthcare for more and more people. I'm hoping I make, I hope I make him proud throughout this campaign. I hope I do him justice. Um, but I'm running because of that and I'll bring those priorities and those experiences to the General Assembly. On that personal note, you are a woman of many firsts. You are the first openly trans intern in the White House, the first trans person to speak at the DNC, uh, and now you may be the first trans official in a state Senate. Um, what continues to be the hardest part about blazing new trails, always being the first? Well, you know, I, I consider the opportunities that I have to be uh, an incredible privilege and responsibility. And I know that having a seat at the table changes the conversation, because if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu, as my friends at the Victory Fund like to say. Um, so I know that, that when I have the opportunity of going into a space where someone like me may have never served, at least served openly, um, that I have a responsibility to carry with me the hopes and dreams and, and, and fears and, and needs of so many people. Um, and my goal is to make sure that in whatever space I'm in, I'm helping to make more opportunity for other people, uh, not just other LGBTQ people, but other folks who are um, feeling left behind or unseen and unheard to make sure that they have an opportunity to have a seat at the table to participate in our democracy and to make change in their communities. Mm. Well, Sarah, last year you released a book titled Tomorrow Will Be Different, Love, Loss, and the Fight for Trans Equality. And former Vice President Joe Biden wrote the foreword. Will you be leaning on Mr. Biden's uh, support for your own campaign this year? I'm sure uh, Vice President Biden is focused on his race for the presidency, just as I'm focused on, on this race here. Um, I was fortunate enough to work for his uh, late son, Beau Biden, here in Delaware. Uh, both in 2006 and 2010. But I think his focus is going to be on that race as my focus will be on this race and improving myself uh, and, 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 and introducing myself to as many voters as possible. Because at the end of the day, these races are one going door to door uh, where residents have the opportunity to get to meet and get to know the candidate. And I have every intention of putting uh, shoe to pavement and knocking on as many doors as possible. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today, Sarah, and good luck out there. Thank you so much. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. It was great to talk to her. Uh, you know, one of the things I feel like we don't talk about enough is the burden of being yeah. the first to do everything. And, um, you know, you just hear about how cognizant uh, she is mm -hmm. about, about that, about the responsibility. Yeah. You know, and these folks, like, you may, they may seem glamorous that they get to be on stage at the DNC and run for office, but it's still hard and people go through their own things. And I appreciate her sharing her own story with her late partner. Yeah, uh, it's a very special story to share with us. And thank you for doing that, Sarah. All right. Well, we have a tweet here from Lachlan Markey who tweeted, This is wild. Three days after Seth Rich was killed, Russian intelligence drafted a fake memo implicating Rich in the DNC email hack. 
It soon popped up online and the conspiracy theories snowballed. Michael Isakoff, the chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News tweeted, Exclusive, how Russian intelligence agents planted one of the most insidious conspiracy theories of the 2016 election, my new six-part podcast series. And Michael joins us now to discuss his reporting. Good morning. Good morning. So walk us back a little bit. Um, Who was Seth Rich and what was the conspiracy theory about him? Seth Rich was a 27-year-old data director at the Voter Protection Division of the Democratic National Committee. He was uh, he was from Omaha. He had, uh, was working on voting rights. Um, he was walking home uh, in the early hours of Sunday morning, July 10th, uh, after a night uh, drinking at his favorite uh, bar, Lou City Bar in Washington, D.C., uh, and he was shot and killed in what police uh, quickly concluded was a botched robbery. There had been a rash of robberies in that uh, in his neighborhood in the weeks before his death, seven in the six weeks before. Um, and uh, it, uh, the, um, the circumstances uh, all pointed to this, his death being um, another, the result of another one of those robberies in which he resisted. He had bruises on his face, on his knuckles. So there was a fight um, and he was shot in the back twice and died early that morning. Uh, as we report, within just three days of that incident, um, a, a, an obscure website uh, uh, runs this wild story that Seth Rich was on his way to talk to the FBI early that Sunday morning when he was gunned down by a squad of assassins working for Hillary Clinton. Um, it turns out that that uh, web article was based on a, a report that had been circulated by the Russian SVR. That's their version of the CIA. It was a deliberate disinformation plant uh, that uh, planted the seeds of this conspiracy that uh, uh, Seth Rich's death was the result of uh, a political assassination linked to the Clintons. And from there, as you point out, it uh, you know migrated to alt-right websites. Uh, uh, you know, allies of Donald Trump, like Roger Stone, picked up on it. And of course, it ultimately um, ends up on Fox News, uh, shouted to the rooftops by Sean Hannity. Mm. So beyond all the, you know, the Russian intelligence services and these other people you mentioned, how did the White House itself push this theory out to the public? Well, you know, this had come up uh, after the Fox News story about what role did the White House play. And in our podcast, which, by the way, is called Conspiracy Land, uh, <laughs> you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts uh, and download. We uh, 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 released the first two episodes yesterday. Uh, but uh, as you'll see, as this conspiracy theory evolves and uh, migrates and grows, um, it ultimately makes its way to the Trump White House. And we point out that Steve Bannon himself, senior counselor to the president of the United States at the time, uh, texts to a CBS 60 Minutes producer uh, encouraging him to pursue the Seth Rich story, calling it huge story. It was a contract kill, obviously. I mean, the details are just really stunning, um, which made me wonder, uh, what made you decide to investigate this story and what was the process like? 
Well, you know, it's interesting. I um, had spent a lot of time uh, reporting on and investigating the Russian role in the uh, in, in its interference in the 2016 election and the Russian ties to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, all the matters that became the the subject of Robert Mueller's investigation. Uh, and in the background, I would always keep hearing about the Seth Rich case that um, uh, the allies of Trump uh, and the White House were pushing the idea that no, uh, the, those DNC emails that were hacked by Russian intelligence and sent to WikiLeaks for publication, that didn't happen. It was really an insider, Seth Rich, this uh, uh, the the 27-year-old the who uh, put those emails on some sort of thumb drive and then sent them to WikiLeaks. So it was a way of diverting public attention and investigators' attention from what really happened to this other culprit, this dead guy who was shot in Washington in an apparent botched robbery. Yeah, well, a fascinating and disturbing story. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And you can subscribe now to Conspiracy Land wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, Ooh. both cool. fascinating, chilling. Ooh. I always find the reporting process really interesting. For sure, as you know, we are reporters and we know how these things are winding and kind of all over the place. But then to hear someone else's process and also to think that like something that was just completely made up, made its way to the White House, uh, is, uh, yeah. is, is sobering. Yes, sobering, sobering. Well, coming up, I'm sitting down with Broadway legend Joel Grey and actor Stephen Skybell. But up next, it's time for Fire Tweets. Ooh. Can I do my best? Rapino. <gasps> ah, ah yes. look at that. Our new background. Forever. <laughs> Welcome back. It is time for Fire Tweets, but look at that. Look at that, that beautiful, beautiful parade. Beautiful uh, parade. Our legends, oh, beautiful our people. goddesses. Uh, look at the joy. I know. People are happy. People are happy. People are excited to be there. We, um, the governor was, that the was, governor, the, that was the governor. governor. Cuomo there. stopped by. Yeah. Good for him. I want to see the women, though. Thank I want to see the women. Thank you very much. <laughs> Change those camera angles up. Well, we uh, have some tweets, actually, about the parade itself. We have one from Joe Prince Wright, who says, Parades are cool. Equal pay is cooler is a banner that the U.S. Women's National Team are now holding up on their float. And Ugh. hell yeah, equal oh, pay is cooler. Like cooler. honor them by paying them what they're due. Yes, because look concept. at the crowds that show up for them. I just don't get, I don't even get the numbers. No. They should be more supportive. There, there should be. And you know, one of my other favorite tweets was a photo of Megan Rapino doing the, are you not entertained? Yes, I'm there, you look. See, which is the pose that she uh, did out on uh, the corner of the field. So, you know, we need a name for that. Yes, we like, do. Is it the Rapino or something? I'm going to let her name it herself okay. because she has what? Agency. And I love that. Okay. God. All right. Well, let's get to these tweets. Let's do it. Ugh, you tweeted. So I told my boyfriend I was having my period and he said, again? You know what? You're right. I'm going to cancel that month's subscription. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's true. I'm tired of this shit. I love that men probably think women are in part of some subscription plan. Like, this is Netflix and your period. This is, yeah. no. Girl. Yeah. And this is also how you get left. Look, sounding that dumb. Also, I just feel like if men had to go through this stuff, we would get so many more sick days. I think about that all mm -hmm. the time. I'm like, we would have multiple, multiple, yes. multiple sick days. If men went through many things women went through, this world would be a lot better. And I say that as a male-identified person. Facts only. Boop. Facts on that. <laughs> Kevin, you tweet it. Spirit! Beyonce is giving every aspect of her vocal range and technique in this song. And a surprise key change out of nowhere? 
Woo! I can't even give justice to the excitement. Did you do that? Did you pass out like the I, gif? I did almost drop my phone. <laughs> when I got the text last night that she was releasing this song and also she's curated the entire album for Lion King, I literally just tweeted, I'm overwhelmed. overwhelmed. That's all I could say. All I can say and all I, I can that, do like, now. That really, that captures it. All right. Fleetwood, you tweeted. What do your tattoos mean? They mean I'm fucking cool, okay? <laughs> I mean, they obviously. I love a tattoo. I don't have a tattoo. Do you have a tattoo? I have zero tattoos, but I, I always stop myself from asking people what their tattoos mean because I feel like they get that question all the time. <laughs> obviously, they're cool. And yeah. I'm a person that asks you what your tattoo is. <laughs> and may ask to touch it if it's consensual. I will oh my never goodness. Unconsensually touch your tattoo. But so show me your tattoos. <laughs> that sounded weird. <laughs> Tyler, you tweeted. 2079, authorities tracked down the last white man. <laughs> <laughs> this video is everything. Y'all, I've seen this tweet a few times this morning and every It's time, so funny. It's because it takes me. It takes me somewhere. And also, this is going to be the truth because we're all going to live in a water world because the climate change and there will be a dinghy with one white man running there, from. There is a, there what did is you a call this earlier? I said, I said, the thing that like flies in, which who the hell even knows what was actually happening in this looks video? From Harry the thing Potter. that flies in looks like a Dementor that's coming to get this guy. But Harry. it's so good. I just... <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Please all take right, it down. Right. I, I think I'll, after the show, I'm going to go watch focus. this video 10 more times. All right, ready for the truth <laughs> yes, of the day? Comes from Gotham. Overheard at Whole Foods in Silver Spring. Husband. I didn't know there was a Women's World Cup. Wife. Say it louder so that everyone knows what a dick you are. <laughs> it's true. It's true. How how could you not? Men know? are trash. I swear to God. You how do you not know that a women's World Cup happened and they demolished? Like even the president of the United States paid attention. Good God. I mean, this is how again you get left. I'm going to host a show after this. Men, how you get left by your wives? Hosted by Zach Sefford. I, I would watch that show. <laughs> I would I would enjoy it. Um, I just want to say, you know, uh, just call it the World Cup. Yes. Like, no more women's World Cup called the World Cup and then called the other one the men's World Cup. Nope, because men, you aren't performing, so you don't get, get, you don't get to get gendered. So. Precisely. Anyway, coming up, Alex is sitting down <laughs> with Oscar, Tony, and Golden Globe winner Joel Grey and actor Steven Skybo. But up next, we'll be talking to BuzzFeed News Europe editor Alberto Nardelli about Russia. Stay so tuned. So much, so much. So much happening. Oh, uh, look at the confetti. Oh my God, look at Love it. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News Europe editor Alberto Nardelli. We have obtained a secret audio recording of a Moscow meeting between three Russian operatives and a close aide to Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini negotiating a plan to pump money from a Russian oil deal into Salvini's far-right Lega party. He continues with this tweet. This tape provides the first hard evidence of Russia's clandestine attempts to fund Europe's nationalist movements and the apparent complicity of some senior figures from the far right in those attempts. Mm. Joining us is Alberto, who broke this story earlier today. Good morning, Alberto. Good morning. How are you? Good, good. And thank you for joining us. Uh, I know it's a different, oh, my pleasure. different time for you. Uh, so first, who is this European Trump and what are his ties? Well, he's the... Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini and the leader of the far-right um, Lega Party. And he's long been a very vocal supporter of Putin's. But this is the first bit of you know, hard evidence that shows that that relationship potentially goes beyond um, supporting the same kinds of ideas and policies. What was the uh, goal of this deal and how are those involved uh, responding well, I think first of all, it's important 
to know that we don't know if the uh, deal was ever executed, i.e. if the funding was ever handed over. What we do know is that there was a very uh, detailed technical uh, discussion which lasted for over an hour. And it wasn't the first time that, that such a discussion uh, took place. And they talked about you know, the amount of uh, fuel to sell, which ports to use. So very technical, very specific uh, details. And very simply put, the way that this uh, agreement um, would have worked is that the a small percentage of the transaction, a discount, if you will, would have been siphoned and transferred to Mr. Salvini's political party. Mm. And it becomes very clear in your story that these people went to great lengths to conceal that this would go to Salvini's party. What is the legal ramification of a deal like this? Well, in Italy, it's... Um, it, at the time, it was illegal to raise funds over 100,000 uh, euros. So clearly, this would have been exponentially a lot more money. And since January this year, it's completely illegal to raise money from abroad. Mm. Um, you're not so able the legals are pretty clear. Mm. You're not able to identify the men in the tape. Um, so how are you able to confirm that they were high-ranking officials from their respective countries? So what we know from the audio, and we've also published a complete transcript today, is that they mentioned various times that they have to feed information back to Mr. Deputy Prime Minister. And reportedly, Salvini met the previous day with the Russian Deputy Prime Minister, and Salvini has never denied this. And also, they reference um, a name of a senior official within Vladimir Putin's uh, party, Vladimir Kligin. So both these people are actually mentioned in the recording. And so at the very least, it indicates that senior Kremlin officials were aware that these conversations were taking place. Mm, incredible. So the tapes also have someone stating, a new, a new Europe has to be close to Russia as before because we want to have our sovereignty. What does this person mean or what do you believe this person was meaning by that? Well, I think it's important to understand the um, ideology which um, the Lega Party believes in. So it's a very nationalist um, ideology. So it's fundamentally an anti-EU message, and it's fundamentally a message of uh, countries built around the idea of the uh, nation state. And so it's that nationalist ideology that they're, that they're uh, really pushing. So um, making do with like multilateral organizations like the European um, Union and ideolo ideologically, they're also this individual specifically is also very much aligned with Russia's worldviews. So, so they protested against sanctions against Russia for quite a while. So that's what they mean by getting close to Russia again. Well, Alberto, thank you so much for joining us today and so quickly after you publish the story. Thank you for having me. Of course. Ooh, ooh, yeah. right. And we'll make sure we tweet out that story for uh, everybody to read. Yes, because there's always more Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Later on in the show, Alex is sitting down with Broadway legend Joel Grey. But up next, Stephanie is talking some drama at a New York preschool. I'm very fascinated. Yes. I don't know. Drama is with the kids. Yes. a tweet from Mint Cake. The Grace Church Nursery School story is great. It's great to hate every single person in a story and have no positive feelings for anyone. 
Well, Jessica Pressler, who is the contributing editor at New York Magazine and author of the story, The Battle of Grace Church, joins me now. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. I have to say, I loved your story so much. It is exactly what I want to read on the internet after work. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that. So my number one question after reading this story was, how did you find out about this? I am dying to know how you came across this saga. Okay, so so basically, um, I heard about it from two different people, actually, um, parents at the school or, or people who are friends with parents at the school. Who it's this you know small nursery school beloved institution in Brooklyn Heights in the historic district, and sort of word had gotten around that they had. Um, it was for a really long time the school was run by a, a woman who was kind of like a neighborhood institution. She retired. They hired a new director. They brought in um, a, a new person to kind of modernize the school, and. Um, and, and the rumor was that uh, suddenly she was gone. You know, she had been there for a year or two. Suddenly she was gone. She was escorted out of her office. It was very dramatic. It was mid-year. And people didn't know what was going on. Um, nobody had kind of said anything, uh, given any details about what happened. Like a kind of vague letter went out. And there was all this kind of like intrigue around it. Um, and so I sort of became fascinated by that um, and, and trying to figure out what happened. Because there were wild rumors, of course. A lot of the tension in the story, which as a non-rich person was very interesting for me to read about, was this divide between the old money and the new money people in the school, in the neighborhood. And that dynamic was, why were these groups so upset with each other over something as seemingly benign as a preschool? Well, um, it had it had to do with a lot of things. I mean, it, people in general like don't like change very much. They're they're a little bit resistant, even when they think they want change. It's hard to deal with. So so the director of the school changed. She brought a lot of changes to the school, um, and at the same time, the neighborhood was changing. There was a lot of development, and a lot of new people kind of were moving into like Dumbo and the waterfront district. And there's only like a few schools that you can get your kid into um, in that neighborhood. The amount of schools remain the same. So it just became this pressure cooker with all of these people trying to get their kids into like the same four schools. And I think it became very like tense and people were really uh, worried and, and anxious about that, uh, that dynamic. And I think that kind of fueled, you know, suspicion of, of these uh, presumable outsiders, these uh, presumptuous outsiders. Um, and uh, yeah, that kind of, and they didn't really, you know, interact very much. It was just pick up and drop off type of things. So I think it kind of, uh, it, it caused some tension. I want to read a tweet that you've sent after publishing your piece. You said that these people are all for the most part, extremely likable, at least the ones I interacted with. Unfortunately, due to various constraints, legal and otherwise, this doesn't totally come across, but I liked them and you all would probably like them too. And this is a really interesting point, right? Because I think a lot of people were so quick to just hate on everyone in the story. Like the first tweet we read said that they hated everyone equally. But these actually, I mean, these aren't horrible people, right? How did you end up empathizing with the people in this story? 
at the end of the day, these are all people who want what's best for their children and um, who care about children, um, the teachers and the parents alike. So that is, you know, the main thing that unites them in, in not being terrible people. There's also, you know, New York is ridiculous about schools and, and parents are super anxious and there's lots of competition. Everybody knows that it's kind of a hysteria that you get into. They're, they're pretty self-aware um, of, of that situation and how it can almost be funny, even though it feels like just life or death important stuff with preschool. Um, so that was, that, that, you know, was always like a connective thing that it was like, we all know this is like, there's a, a silliness to this, except it's of course not silly at all because this woman lost her job. But, and so then on her part, I mean, I, I feel like she was a, a victim of a lot of this kind of hysteria that happened. I feel like this is also something that happens not just in New York, but all over the country where parents, <laughs> right. yeah, parents just care a lot about their kids and it just devolves into media. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. I would encourage everyone to read this piece before it becomes a TV show. And I don't know about you, but I am on the edge of my seat. I want more of this drama. Up next, Alex is sitting down with Joel Gray and Steven Skybell. Fiddler on the Roof is a story that hits close to home for American Jews like me, whose great-grandparents fled their shtetls in Eastern Europe at the turn of the 20th century to escape anti-Semitic animus and pogroms, massacres. And now that connection feels even stronger in the revival performed in the language that our families would have spoken, Yiddish. This production from the National Yiddish Theater of Folksbina is directed by Oscar, Tony, and Golden Globe winner Joel Gray and stars Stephen Skybell as the lead, Tevye, and they both join me now. Hello, hello. And we're so happy. Yes, I, I mean, I am also so thrilled to get to talk to you both about this production. And uh, Joel, I want to start with you. Um, I know that your dad was a Yiddish comedian. You even performed some songs uh, in Yiddish when you were young. But what appealed to you about directing an all-Yiddish production of this show? Um, almost nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I loved Fiddler on the Roof. I loved the original... Tevye the Milkman, which was Sholem Aleichem's stories about Tevye. And I had seen maybe eight or ten different productions and I've always been deeply moved. And I somehow thought there was a way to tell this story. The fact that it was in Yiddish and I didn't speak Yiddish, that I would tell it like a small group of people telling a story of their beginnings, mm. which is what all of us were. Mm. And you mentioned Tevye the Milkman. Stephen, of course, you play Tevye. And uh, you first played Tevye in, when you were like a teenager. When I, when I was 17 at yeah. National Music Camp in Interlochen, Michigan, I played Tevye. Then I played him again when I was 21 at Yale undergrad. Then there was a big hiatus. I was always looking in my adult life to find an opportunity to play Tevya. And who would have thought it would be in Yiddish? But here it is in Yiddish. And you, you learned a little bit of Yiddish in your 30s, but how did the language allow you to connect with the character now? Well, it, it, the translation, Shraga Friedman did the translation in 1966. And there are a little additions to it that are straight out of Sholem Aleichem. And it really just sets the character, not only in the Broadway musical that he is, but it goes all the way back to the Sholem Aleichem. So it feels so 
authentic to be speaking Tevian Yiddish. Mm. Um, now, initially, this show was supposed to run for just a few weeks at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Yeah. Uh, it did so well, it moved to stage 42. Now we've passed the one-year anniversary. Um, what do you think uh, resonated so much about it? I, I, I would suspect that the people who came to see it had no idea that it was going to touch them so deeply hearing the Yiddish that they thought they had left behind. Hmm. And all of a sudden they remembered their grandparents talking it and their parents. And uh, somehow it, it all of a sudden had an authenticity that uh, I don't think it had before. I mean, you saw it as a kid in Texas for the first time, right? And there's yeah. a documentary coming out where I think Lin-Manuel Miranda even talks about feeling connected to the material. Yeah. Why do you think the themes are just so universal? Well, I do think it is universal. And one is because it's about family, father and daughters, mother and children, parents and children. But then as the musical moves through, it becomes about a people who are being forced out of their homes. And what, what in the 60s may have felt a little nostalgic is sadly so um, pertinent for today in terms of people finding themselves without a home and trying to find a place to go that will welcome them. And I think people are surprised at how um, contemporary and of the moment Fiddler on the Roof feels with that final push of all the Jews out of their home and they really don't know where they're going to go. You said something yesterday at... Uh at a conversation we had about the fact when you saw Fiddler, you thought that it was hopeful. Right. Because I always thought as a kid when I experienced it, Tevye, you're going to be okay. You're going to America. You're going to be my grandfather. And you're probably going to make a lot of money. And But, of course, that's not necessarily the truth of what that final thing is. And was. you can't look at it that way. Today, ever, ever no. again, no, yeah, not with right. history, no. Yeah, you were talking about how Roosevelt turned a boat back, mm -hmm. and so even though at that time America was the land of possibility mm -hmm. for immigrants, but there was always tremendous anti-Semitism. Yeah, always. Yeah, it's, and still is. Yeah, I mean, sadly. when you when you are <clears throat> seeing and engaging with headlines like you know thinking about the rising tide of anti-Semitism, the Pittsburgh yeah. attack, the conversation that's happening right now with migrant facilities at uh, the border. I mean, does that impact how you perform the show? Like what you take with you to the stage? Absolutely, without question. Well, it's in you. Yeah, yeah. you know, if you're an actor who is thoughtful and feeling, yeah. uh, you take that with you. You don't say, oh, I'm going to do it like this because yeah. of what's going on in yeah, the world. Right. But it's, it has its effect on you. And that is, that's what the beauty of Fiddler on the Roof is, is that it has moved with time in that way. And it was always there, this cautionary tale about uh, people being forced out of their homes and what intolerance in the world can be do mm -hmm. um, and how there must be another answer. I mean, it, not that it preaches because it's incredible entertainment, but it has a deep message that ultimately isn't resolved at the end of the play. Mm. Well, uh, recently, uh, Joel, you actually, you compared, uh, as we passed the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, you compared um, the LGBTQ struggle with the Jewish struggle. I myself identify as an LGBTQ Jew, so I'm wondering uh, where you see that overlap, where you see those parallels. Well, any marginalized people um, are all marginalized people, and we're all in this 
together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And the uh, the other can be ostracized or needs to be embraced. And that that's the tale of, of Stonewall and it's the tale of the shtetl, uh, Anatevka, and it's the tale of what's going on now in, in our world. It, you know, it, you want to embrace the other and welcome the other, just as the Statue of Liberty has inscribed at its base. Yeah. I mean, thinking about embracing the other, Joel, you actually first talk about being LGBTQ when you were like 82 years old, right? How has life changed since talking about it? <laughs> it's better. <laughs> it's better. It's better, but it's not perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, well, I, one more thing I, I really want to ask you about uh, uh, Fiddler on the Roof is that it seems like some of the music has had a whole other life uh, of its own for new generations. Like, there's the dance hall version of Rich Girl. I don't know if you've heard it. There's, no. oh, Gwen Stefani had a hit song um, with that. Rich Man. Yeah. Um, what do you hope new generations and younger generations take away from the music and the message? Well, I mean, I will say that... that because we have an incredible orchestra that plays this music with a real klezmer heart. And it just, it, to, it you just. You can't resist it. You cannot resist it. And so I can imagine Jews and non-Jews can just respond to that kind of, there's, there is depth. some depth. Yeah, <laughs> depth. Right? Yeah. So. Uh, it's so deep. That shtetl music and that klezmer music is, is primal. It really is. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, looking back uh, on your career, what are some of the projects that have meant the most to you? Well, this one. <laughs> this one's this pretty, one. okay. pretty high up. And uh, Cabaret was also yeah. uh, about something very political mm-hmm. in which I was the total opposite. I was the enemy mm-hmm. in that. And I, my job in that was to make that enemy so horrible. Mm. that you never forgot mm. how bad he was, mm. except for the people who thought he was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, people came and said, <laughs> oh, that was so much fun. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. You guys had worked together before, uh, Fiddler. How is it working with Joel again? Well, it's incredible, you know, and uh, he, 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 we know what an amazing performer Joel Gray is, but the surprise, the first time I worked with him and and absolutely this time, is he is one of the best directors I have ever worked with. One, I think, because he knows actors and their process. And mm-hmm. loves actors. Right. Mm-hmm. Some directors don't love actors. <laughs> I mean, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Especially this actor. But he, I mean, the, I mean, our musical has been a success. It's won countless Best Revival awards, and yeah. it's all laid on the shoulders of this man who had this specific vision about this musical. He's been thinking about it for 50 years since it first, he saw the out-of-town tryout in Washington, D.C. I did. And from that moment on has been mulling over what this musical is, what it can be, and um, and the ability to... The ability to, to live his vision is something I cherish every night on the stage. We have a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. I mean, really young people who know nothing about the Holocaust and know nothing about anti-Semitism. Yeah. And a lot of non-Jews, mm-hmm. young people. They are, they are like stoked and <laughs> yeah. excited yeah. and uh, powerful. They have been given a power. Yeah. That they 
thrive with every night. Mm -hmm. And I just love watching that. <laughs> well, before you go, really quick, I have to ask, uh, I love using Yiddish in everyday life. Um, so do either of you have a favorite Yiddish phrase or a term that you use? I like kvetch. I'm always like, oh, I'm kvetching about this and that, the other thing, yeah. <laughs> and what do you say? Kvetch. Kvetch. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd say that's my, my Yiddish term of choice. Well, I mean, my insult that I love that I use in the play is du gornisht, which is you nothing, I say <laughs> to Mottle the tailor. It's not like you are nothing, you, you nothing. nothing. And I just sit out there in the audience and cavell. Oh, <laughs> so proud, yeah. That's the word. Yeah. Cavell. Get pleasure. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you Wonderful. so much. And you can see Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish at Stage 42 through early 2020. Here's a tweet from Jane Litvinenko. Been trying to tell people this for months, but everyone just looks, just looks at me like I'm a crazy nerd. Within 15 years, thousands of miles of fiber optic cable and hundreds of pieces of other key infrastructure are likely to be swamped by the encroaching ocean. My God. Jane joins me now to talk about her obsession and my newest fear <laughs> that climate change is going to drown the internet. Jane, thank you for bringing me to my real life nightmare. <laughs> thank you for indulging my obsession. It's really great. It's becoming my new obsession, so thank you for being here. But let's jump right on in. This National Geographic article you retweeted says that rising seas are endangering the delicate web of cables and power stations that control the internet. But isn't mm -hmm. the internet mostly wireless? So it's not. More than 90% of our internet is going through cables. Satellites play a very small role in how we get our internet. So most of the cables are laid uh, under the sea. They're called submarines. And they raise up on coasts of different continents. So that means those where the submarine cables emerge and hit land, they're in danger of being flooded by climate change within the next 15 years. Gotcha. So they are flooding right now because they're close to the ocean. Why did we put them there, I guess, is my first question. <laughs> the internet has been uh, structured pretty haphazardly. Uh, it is interconnected and, uh, and uh, uh, we do have backups to rely on, especially in developed countries. But when it comes to connecting submarine cables, the demand has grown so quickly that there isn't any real structure to how they're laid. Mm. And some of these cables could be flooded within 15 years. What would that mean for us? <laughs> That's a big question. I mean, uh, I think that tech companies themselves who have laid these cables are thinking about these issues. But I do want to stress that people getting cut off from the internet is not a hypothetical scenario. Mm. We've seen this in Canada uh, over here uh, last year when a small town in Quebec was completely cut off from communications during a winter storm. And in uh, the island nation of Tonga, when a ship dropped an anchor on a fiber optic cable, Tonga was completely cut off from the internet as well. Wow, 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 wow. So what <laughs> would it take to prevent this problem from occurring? Uh, we really need to think about how the infrastructure that we currently have is going to be impacted by climate change. And this doesn't just go for the Internet. Uh, we know that our roads, our buildings, uh, basically all of the infrastructure that we rely on now, even communications infrastructure, 
like telephones or uh, televisions, they all rely on a vision of the world that doesn't necessarily take climate change into account. So that's something that uh, urban planners, those who lay cables, uh, they need to really think about what the rising sea levels mean for the infrastructure that we rely on. Mm, the infrastructure we rely on. Okay. <laughs> you also tweeted, quote, by far the most energy heavy online activity is video consumption. Your Netflix and porn habits are costing the planet. Wow, what a perspective. At this point, would changing our Netflix and porn habits even help? <laughs> uh, I doubt it. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, um, it, it, we should be aware of how much energy it takes, but turning off Netflix and going outside while better for your health and for the planet is probably not a realistic solution to this problem. Okay, so keep watching your porn and Netflix. Netflix and chill until we die. <laughs> so Jane, thank you so much. Just, be, just feel guilty about it. It's going to change Netflix and chill forever. Like, I love you, but we're killing the planet. Whatever. This is going to last forever, <laughs> meaning two years. Well, Jane, thank you so much for joining and terrifying us. I will be up all night tonight. <laughs> Great. You're very welcome. All right. Well, y'all don't go away. Up next, Alex and I responding to your tweets. So stay tuned. Welcome back, y'all. And I must say, that interview with Joel Gray Ugh. really got my spirits feeling high. You two just look like old girlfriends. Oh, just thank you. Out. I'm spelling. Anybody who will, like, say anything in Yiddish with me yeah. it just makes me really happy. It was so <laughs> sweet. I'm not that familiar with Fiddler on the Roof, and I knew you were doing this interview today, and I need to go see it. But seeing you all sit down in Mr. Skybell was just fantastic. Yeah, it was a very, very cool, yeah. cool moment. Just because that show means so much to, I think, so many people whose families yes. created, you know. It's incredible. Yeah, and yeah. it was a great aperitif to my nightmare, which is the internet's going out. <laughs> yeah. I don't care the world's Perfect. ending, the internet's going out. <laughs> the internet's like, going what out. are we going to do? Yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Well, um. listen, we still have a little bit of joy to get to before <laughs> the internet goes out. And Josh Billison yes. tweeted this from the Women's Soccer Team Parade downtown. Megan Rapinoe standing on a parade float in Manhattan with a bottle of Uve in one hand and the World Cup trophy in the other, shouting, I deserve this. There will never be a bigger mood. Give Hell this woman yeah. everything. 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 Girl, I got your next bottle. I got the bottle <laughs> of that. We got to talk about the third bottle because these are expensive, but I will buy you Get a Get her a Magnum bottles. bottle, like one of those yeah. huge ones, oh, and put a obsessed. straw in it. Let her go. She's amazing. Yeah. She is amazing. Well, speaking of amazing people, Princess Leia tweeted this after our fire tweets about tattoos. Okay, to be fair, people, ask me about what my tattoos mean, and I don't necessarily mind because all of mine do have meaning. I, ooh, so I have never related to those jokes, though 50% of mine are dark-sided, so people usually stop talking after. <laughs> ask and you shall receive, but be careful what you wish for, yeah. I suppose. You, so. you asked for the story, here you go. You got it. <laughs> all right, well, thank you to our guests, Alberta Nardelli, Stephanie McNeil, Jane Litvinenko, Sarah McBride, Michael Isikoff, Jessica Pressler, Joel Gray, and Stephen Skybell. So many guests today, so many, and so I love every minute of it. Oh, and yes. we will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Now let's go to the parade. Okay.